Hello, I'm uh, Greg Boyd, the speaking pastor at Woodland Hills Church, and I want to thank you for getting this tape, and I'm happy that you're listening to it. On a, on a Sunday, where virtually everything that could go wrong went wrong, uh, one of the things that went wrong was that our uh, tape machine uh, didn't work, at least not as adequately as we might have liked, and so the first several minutes of the sermon, actually about the first five six minutes of the sermon were, uh, uh, weren't recorded. And so what I'd like to do here is, um, if I may have your permission, even if I don't have your permission, it's too late. You already bought the tape, so I'll do it anyways. I, I, I want to set up the sermon for you and kind of cover what I covered in the initial moments of the sermon on Sunday morning. That was uh, June, I believe, 6th or June 5th. A real incredible morning. Uh, I think the enemy was attacking us left and right, and as I said, everything that could go wrong went wrong, uh, but the Spirit of God was there in a very powerful way, and he proved to us once again that uh, his ability to show up, his, his power, his love, his grace, uh, is in no way contingent upon what we do or don't do or how good we do it. It's all by his grace and his sovereign spirit. The text I wanted to use uh, for this uh, sermon was John chapter 8, verse 32, and also John 17, 17. John 8, 32 says this, powerful verse here. It says, And you shall know the truth, Jesus says, speaking to his disciples, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And in John 17, 17, he again reiterates to them this word. Sanctify them. He's praying to the Father here. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We're talking about, in this series here, about bringing about change in our life. And... uh, how do we go about growing and being transformed out of some of the problematic areas of our life, especially those areas uh, in our thought, or those areas in our behavior, in our speaking, that have been there for quite some time, that we think ought should not be there, ought not to be there, we wish weren't there, we try to get them out of there, and yet they're very resilient, they, they stick around. What we saw uh, in, the, in the first uh, uh, sermon on this series and this is by way of review, was that to address the problem, you need to address the problem. To address the problem, you need to address the problem and not just the symptom of the problem. As we saw in the first sermon in the series, um, if you're going to actually treat a person's food poisoning, you're going to have to quit being upset with the fact that they're throwing up. Excuse the grossness of the analogy, but I think it works. Um, You need to get beyond the symptoms to get to the core of the problem. If you're going to actually be saved from a fire that's burning a house, you need to to quit being worried about the smell of the smoke and quit being obsessed with trying to get the smoke out of the room. You've got to pay attention to the cause of the problem and not the symptom of the problem. Applied to us, what that means is this. That behavior, when we're talking about change, behavior is not the issue. Normally, when we think of change, we think about changing a particular behavior that we have, something that we do, and so we try to work on our behavior to improve it or to change it or to alter it or what have you. But really, behavior is not itself the issue. Issue, It's the, the result of the issue, the consequence of the issue. 
But the issue is a matter of the heart. And this is why legalism doesn't work. In fact, legalism worsens the situation. Legalism, with all of its do's and don'ts and ought-to-do's and mandates and, and coercions or whatnot, all it succeeds in doing is getting sick people to feel guilty about throwing up. You see, sick people need to throw up. It gets people who maybe have a bad marriage to learn how to pretend like they have a good marriage. It sends the problem into hiding. It camouflages it. It gets people who are uh, plagued with sin to learn how to behave in such a way that they don't look like they have sin. And it gets people who are very wounded. It teaches them how to act like they're healthy even though they're still wounded. To get to the real problem, we've got to go beyond talking about the behavior. We've got to get to the root of the behavior. We've got to look past the behavior. If you ever want to get your husband to be more loving, you're going to have to stop nagging about particular behavior that leads you to believe that he's not loving and get beyond the behavior and get to the root of the problem. Okay, so it is with ourselves. If we're going to change, if we're going to work on ourselves, if we're going to bring about some transformation in our life, we're going to have to cut ourselves some slack in terms of the behavior because as long as we're obsessed with the behavior, we can't ever get to the root of the behavior, the root of the problem. As long as we're obsessed with the vomit, we can't ever get to address the food poisoning. And as long as we're concerned with the smoke, we'll never get to the root of the problem, which is the fire. The problem we saw last week, the root of the problem, is what the Bible calls the flesh. Paul's word in Greek is sarx. Now, the flesh doesn't mean our skin and bone. It doesn't mean our bodies. Sometimes people take it to mean that. They declare war on their bodies, thinking that their bodies are, are evil, and they declare war on their sex drives and on their hormones and what have you, and it, that creates a number of other dysfunctions down the road, as we talked about last week. The flesh is not our skin. The flesh is Paul's term for a worldview, a non-Christian worldview. The flesh is basically constituted by a deception, a deception which leads us to try to get legitimate needs in our life met in illegitimate ways trying to get legitimate needs in our life met in illegitimate ways. We have legitimate needs. We talked about that. We need love. We need value. We need worth. We're created by God to receive those things. Those are legitimate things. God wants to pour His fullness, His love, into our life. And so God creates us with this vacuum that hungers for Him and desires Him. That's a legitimate thing. But the flesh, we saw, deceives us. Whereas the truth is that only God can fill that vacuum, the flesh tells us, and we see all this in Genesis chapter 3, that there's other ways, better ways, that we can go about filling our lives. The, the, the flesh, the enemy deceives us, we see in Genesis 3, by telling us a lie about who God is and about who we are. In contrast to the truth, the enemy says that God's not the all-loving, all-good, all-gracious God that the Bible says He is, that He reveals Himself as being. God doesn't have our best interest in mind. He doesn't, uh, you know, desire the best for us. And that if we're going to improve our life, the flesh says, there's something we've got to do. We can improve upon how God made us. We can improve upon that. There's something we can reach out and grab, something we can acquire that will make our lives really fulfilled. And all this is found in Genesis 3. And this is what constitutes the flesh. If you really want to have life, if you really want to have a fullness of life, then do it on your own. You can't trust God. Trusting God is not enough. Reach out and get something, grab something, acquire something, possess something, look a certain way. And this is a lie 
that permeates our culture. It comes across like poison, like carbon monoxide into your skin. It comes across in, in every area of our, of our culture, through the commercials, through our upbringing, through the media, through the newspaper and things that you read. There is, at the level of assumptions, this lie perpetrated upon us. It's a way of looking at the world, the spectacles that you use to look at the world. It gets us to live life as though it were not true that God were the true God. We live life then perpetually hungry, hungry because the needs in our life which only God can fulfill, we are perpetually trying to fulfill by non-divine means. The needs have got to be met. And if God's not meeting my needs, then I'll use you to meet my needs. And I won't even know that I'm doing it. It won't even be a conscious thing. I'll use my job. I'll use my family. I'll use my abilities. I'll use my appearance. I'll use my religion as a means of getting life, as a means of getting full. I'll use whatever it takes to get full because God's not meeting that need, but the need has got to be met. And so we live our life perpetually hungry. We saw also last week that what you believe in your mind isn't really very important when it comes to this issue of the flesh because the flesh is rooted at a deeper level than what we consciously believe. It's a matter of the heart. It goes to the core of our being. A person can have a fear of flying and yet know in their mind, know all the statistics about flying, that it's safer than cars, it's safer than any, than any other kind of transportation, but it, at the core of their being, in their heart, the depth of their soul, they really believe that they're going to die if they ride in a plane, which is why the thought of riding in a plane creates such fear in their life. What you believe at a conscious level doesn't always determine what you believe at the core of your being. The flesh is a matter of what we believe at the core of our being. It's, it's, it's what we experience as being true at the core of our being. It determines how we interpret the world, how we see the world, how we interact with the world. And all the legalism in the world, all the do's and the don'ts and the doctrines and the maybes isn't going to change that. In the end, all sin and all that's destructive in our life, all the areas of our life where we lack self-control, all the areas of our life where we have anger and we have bitterness and we have strife and we have depression and we worry, it's all the result of holding, at the core of our being, flesh assumptions about who God is and flesh assumptions about who we are. And harping on behavior isn't going to change it because behavior is simply a consequence of that. The question is, what do you believe in the core of your being? What do you experience as being true at the core of your being? Everything else is a footnote to that. Now, the final thing I want to say, setting up the rest of the sermon that we're going to go to here in about a minute, is the person that I want to use as an example of this. We're talking about love in this sermon. And uh, to illustrate what I'm getting at here and how all this applies to this issue of love, I want to talk about a person, I'll call her Jane, a person that I met at a retreat one time, a retreat that I did. And Jane felt, as many people do, at least at times in their life, um, felt empty of love. She felt cold. She felt apathetic. She didn't believe that there was any other person that she really loved. There were people at times in her life that she felt some love for, but now at this point in her life she didn't feel any love towards anyone she didn't feel love towards God when she was honest with herself she just felt cold she felt empty towards life now she had heard from her ex-husband she had heard from her pastors she had heard from Christian friends how she ought to be loving 
she should love. I mean, she's a Christian. She's a real believer. She believes the gospel. She accepts it as being true. And so she ought to love. She had heard many times from a lot of different sources. She better love. Uh, how can she call herself a Christian if she doesn't love? What kind of Christian is she? To not love God with, with all of her heart, mind, body, and soul, and to not love even her enemies. Why, it's a command. But all of that addressing of behavior did not confront the core of Jane's problem. It did succeed at times in motivating Jane to act more loving when she really wasn't. It did succeed in getting Jane to feel very guilty about not being loving when, when she wasn't. It did succeed in getting Jane to say that she loved God and to try to convince herself that she loved God even though she didn't feel anything. And she could justify it by saying that kind of half-truth cliche that, that, that love isn't a feeling, it's a commitment. And that's true. But certainly it's not just a bare duty. It's not simply a bunch of motions that we go through to act loving. It's not just a, an obligation that we carry out. There's more to it than that. And so in the end, though Jane learned how to act loving and pretend like she had all the normal feelings of love that other people had, in the end, she felt hypocritical. She felt hypocritical because she knew, she knew that the inside of her life was not congruous with the outside of her life. Now, what was the core of Jane's problem? And that's where we pick up the sermon on Sunday morning. All camouflage now, and everyone thinks that she's loving. But she knows in her heart that she's not. The problem in a nutshell is this, and I'm just going to cut through a lot of peripheral stuff and cut right to the heart of the issue. You get to know Jane a little bit, and what you find out is this. Jane knows in her mind that God loves her, but Jane doesn't experience that as being true in her life. What Jane experiences as being true in her life is that God is distant from her just like her father was distant from her. That's what she experiences as true. She believes one thing, but at the level of phobias, she believes another thing. Jane knows in her mind that Jesus died for her for free. She knows that. She believes it. But what she experiences as being true in her life is that she doesn't get anything for free. Under the impact of the commercials and the media and the upbringing and everything else, under the impact of her father, what she experiences as being true is that God is as conditionally loving as her father, and if the conditions aren't met, he's gone, he's gone, and usually the conditions aren't met. Jane believes in her mind that, that she's created and she's redeemed to have unconditional worth, unconditional value. She believes that with her mind. But what she experiences in the core of her being as being true, and this is her rooting in the flesh. This is the flesh. This is the deception. What she experiences as being true is that there's no worth there. There's no value there. The only worth and value she could ever have is the worth of the good deeds she could do, the worth of the nice abilities she might have, the worth of the, the beauty she might be able to project. And even when she can do that, she doesn't feel worthwhile. Because all the worth she gets doesn't attach to her soul. It attaches to what she did to get the worth. Are you following me here? One analogy I sometimes use is it's like, it, it, it's like eating a, a seven-course meal and having all the food get stuck in your teeth. Picture it. Well, if, if you are... Chipmunk. If you are saying this and doing this and behaving this and acting this way and putting on this and looking this way and doing this in order to get love, to get value, to get worth, to meet the conditions, then even when you do it, you still don't, you're still hungry, you're still starved because it's not about you. It's, what, it's about what you did to get it. It doesn't go deep enough. 
If, if your lovability is, is conditioned upon your behavior, then what really is lovable is not you at all. It's your behavior. Because take away the behavior and you're, you're no longer lovable. So the soul goes on being starving. And that was Jane's problem. That was Jane's issue. Because of Satan's influence in the world, that serpent that is perpetually whispering in our ears, because of her upbringing, because of things that happened with her friends, because of the commercials and the TV and the media and the things she's read, because of what Paul calls the pattern of this world, Jane, at the core of her being, believed a deception. She believed a lie. In her mind, she believed one thing, she professed one thing, but at the core of her being, she was saturated with poison. And the result of that, the result of that, was that Jane could not love. Because you cannot give what you yourself are in need of. You cannot give what you yourself are in need of. Look at if I, hypothetically speaking here, were uh, really in debt, let's say that, let's say that I, hypothetically speaking, were, was uh, a little subliminal messages. Let's say my pockets were, were empty and I was really, in, no, we're going to take another offering here. Um, let's say that they were going to foreclose on my house and take away my wife and kids and break my kneecaps because I couldn't pay this debt and I was really in $10,000 in debt. The world becomes for me now. I, I, my, my situation is so desperate, it screams louder than anyone else's need. So what I know, what I live with, what I wake up with is my need for money. And every, every person I relate to becomes a potential stockbroker, a potential loaner. I need money and I need it now. Everyone is a potential bank for me because that's what's on my mind. And I'm going to relate in ways that I can maybe borrow some money here and try to save my house or what have you. That's not the time to go hit me up for a loan. Because I'm in need. I can't give you what I myself am desperate for. If I'm a starving person and I'm near death in, in starvation, don't ask me for food. I can't give you what I myself am in need of. Life in the flesh is life lived in need of. Always in need of. Because your value, your worth, your lovability... It all has to be met. And God's not meeting it because you've been deceived. So everyone else around you has to meet it. So you live life like a giant suction cup. You don't know it. You don't think it. You don't plan it. But it's there. We live life like, to the degree that we are rooted in the flesh, we live life like a black hole. Maybe you've heard of these black holes out in outer space. Uh, they're they're, they're uh, centers of intense gravity. Supernovas that have collapsed in on themselves. This is Carl Sagan with his billions and billions and billions of stars. He tells you that, that, that a, a black hole is, this, is, is a supernova that collapsed in on itself, and the gravity is so intense and so thick that even light can't escape it. Everything that comes within the vicinity of this black hole gets sucked up into it. And even light can't escape. Light comes up and it returns back in because it's so intense. That's why it's called a black hole. Well, we, to the degree that we are rooted in the flesh, live life like a black hole. We're empty. We're vacant. We're in need of. And we can't give what we are ourselves in need of. Love, in, in my one-sentence definition of love is this. I, I try to break, you know, what is love? I try to break it down to one sentence, and I, I think I got it. Here's what love is. And you can see why Jane couldn't give it. Love is, most essentially, in its purest form now, Love is a, an unconditional, unilateral movement outward which ascribes worth and value to another. Love is an un, You like that, don't you? <laughs> Love is an unconditional, unilateral movement outward which ascribes worth and value to another. That's what love is. Love is about not finding worth. Like, I think you're worth loving. 
True love. I can't even say that phrase without thinking of, of the, 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 what's that, the prince's bride. Yeah, true love. True love. And marriage. Marriage. That, that is so, the prince is forever jaded my mind. Genuine love. It's not about loving on condition that, or loving because of, loving because you're worth loving. It's a, it's a unilateral movement out. It's based on the fullness of someone. God is love because God unilaterally gives worth and value to us. He doesn't find it there and decide to love. He gives the love by giving us existence and by saving us when we are in, our, in and of ourselves unlovable. That's what love is. But you cannot give worth and value to another when you yourself experience yourself as worthless, when you are a black hole of value. You can't ascribe value to another when your own value is perpetually in question, when you yourself are hungry for value. You can't give yourself away if you have no self to give. You can't give unconditional love. You can't radiate unconditional love when you are a black hole of love, when you've never been loved unconditionally, when you don't experience that. How can you give what you don't have? You can't give a fullness of love when you yourself are completely empty of love, when your love is a deficit. So Jane was running on empty. Jane was running on empty. And all the do's and the don'ts and the shoulds and the oughts and the better do's and the commands and the mandates and the manipulation and all that kind of stuff which she got from a lot of different sources, all that succeeded in doing was getting her, teaching her to act loving when she wasn't. So she camouflaged the whole thing. You can camouflage black holes, but they stay black holes. There's no love there. The problem is not the symptom. The problem is the problem. The problem was not her, her lack of emotion. The problem was not her lack of loving behavior. That was a symptom of the problem. The problem runs deeper. It has to do with what does she experience as being true in the core of her being. Now, what do you do about that? Finally, we're coming to this. And this is something we're going to be hitting at different angles in the next four or five weeks. So don't think you've got to get it all this morning. What do you do about that? There's only one cure for deception. There's only one cure. And it has nothing to do with do's and don'ts. The one cure for deception is what we read the verse this morning. The cure for deception is truth. The cure for deception is truth. Jane had been saturated, like living in a house full of carbon monoxide, Jane had been saturated with poison. What Jane needed was not treatment for her flu-like symptoms, which wouldn't address the problem what she needed was to begin to be saturated with the kind of oxygen she was created to receive. And so it is with us. Change occurs when we start to counteract the saturation, the pollution, and the poison that goes into our life and begin to saturate ourselves with truth. This is what Paul gets at in a lot of different ways in his writings, and we'll have time to explore this more later. But Paul says, be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world is the deception, that voice, that serpent that's always whispering to us lies. Don't be conformed to that any longer, he says, but be transformed. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Get your mind, get your heart, get your life to begin to line up with what God says about you as opposed to what the commercials say about you. And change comes as a byproduct of that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to bring every thought. This is what our spiritual warfare is about. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds. And where are those strongholds? He goes on to say in the next verse, 2 Corinthians 10.5. They are mighty and powerful to the tearing down of strongholds as we bring every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. 
obedient unto Jesus Christ. It is when our mind, when our lives, when our core convictions begin to line up with what God says is true about us, that change begins to occur in our life as a byproduct. First things that happen is we're saturated with truth. John, Jesus says in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them. The word sanctify there means to make holy, to make pure, to make wholesome, to depollute. Is that a word? To depollute them. Father, depollute them. Dilute the lies in their life. Sanctify them, he says, by the truth. And then he goes on to say what the truth is. Thy word is truth. And Jesus says, if you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. We'll talk more particularly about what all this means, but the bottom line is this. If you want to be set free, the answer is found in the word of truth. The way to be set free from your lack of love, from your inability to love, has to do with being saturated with the word of truth. It is when we, at the core of our beings, not just with our minds, but at the core of our beings, when we begin to believe that God's word more than the word of the Clairol hair conditioner commercials, that's when we begin to be free. When what God says about us is heard more loudly and more clearly than what the world says about us, or what our memories say about us, or what our father said about us, or what our mother said about us, or what our husband says about us, or what our wives say about us, when God's word, what he thinks about us, is experienced as being true, more true than what the lying voices say about us, change begins to occur. And it has nothing to do with grinding your teeth and trying hard. It occurs as a byproduct. The question is, are you being saturated with truth? Because so long as we're saturated with lies, so long as we're saturated with lies, we're going to live life in the lying mode. Jane's fundamental problem was this. She'd been polluted by a million different sources with lies. Lies about who God is and lies about who she is. She'd been polluted. What Jane needed was something that was true, that was as vivid as a commercial. What would it, what would it be like if, if, instead of having the Schlitz beer commercials with people without any clothes on, just about uh, selling their graphic beer, you know, there, instead of that, what would it be like if, if after every, you know, with every commercial break, they had something that was that vivid and that graphic and seared itself into our mind that powerfully, but it talked about the love of Jesus. Think about it. Think how you'd be transformed. If you could be reminded every 12 minutes about what Jesus thinks about you, what God thinks about you, how loved you are, how beautiful God is. Every time there's, every 12 minutes when you're watching TV, all of a sudden they'd have another graphic video of Jesus loving you and the beauty of Jesus. What Jane needs is something like that. And what all of us need to some degree is something like that. Jane had been, what Jane needed was to experience the truth as vividly as she experienced the lie. What she needed was to hear as loudly and as concretely and as graphically the truth of God's Word as much as she had heard the lie of Satan's Word. What Jane needed was to experience the Gospel in the same way that she would experienced the world. What Jane needed was to experience the acceptance of God the same way she would experienced the rejection of her father. What Jane needed was to experience, to be penetrated as profoundly by the closeness of God as she had been penetrated by the abandonment of her father. What she needed was to experience at a profound level the truth of who she was in Christ and the truth of who Jesus was in a way that was as graphic, as vivid as was the lie that she had gotten with. What she needed to experience in a nutshell was this, the fullness of God's love. The fullness of who God is as the loving God and who she is as the one who is loved by God. And to experience that as loudly and as repeatedly and as vividly and as profoundly and as penetratingly as she'd experienced all the other lying voices in her life. And when that begins to happen, when that begins to happen, change occurs. 
Let me conclude with two things here. Okay, fine. Now, how do you apply that? That's the principle. How do you apply that? And we're, again, we're going to be talking about this in the next four weeks, but let me just give two little quick things here. What can we begin to do to get saturated with truth? I'll say two things. The first thing is this. The body of Christ has a role in this. The body of Christ has a role in this. Those of us who at least are, are relatively healthy, who, have, who are to some, way, to some degree down the road in getting out of our black hole situation, who have experienced some fullness of life and love, with that comes a responsibility. And the responsibility is this. We are to be Jesus commercials. We need perpetual reminding about who God is and who we are. And we are to some degree to be that towards one another. Walking Jesus commercials, Paul puts it like this. We are living epistles, read and known by all people. You are a walking advertisement for Jesus, a walking incarnation. And, and, and we are to remind one another of the truth. Because we're all being reminded of a lie all the time. We need to counteract it with each other. And I don't know what exactly that will look like in your life. Maybe it will be just introducing yourself to a stranger out there. Showing some of the concern of God there. Maybe that person, that will begin to tell them something about what love is like. Maybe they'll be being willing to spend some time with a person as they talk about their problems. Maybe they'll be praying with a person. Maybe you'll be sending someone a card, uh, remembering their birthday, sending them an I, I appreciate you card. Maybe it'll be an unexpected hug to your kid or an unexpected hug to your spouse or even to another friend. Maybe it'll be helping a neighbor with yard work. I don't know exactly what it would be like. But here's the question we need to walk around with. In, the, in this place and when we, take, when we go outside of this place, the question is, how can we show something of God's love to other people? How can we be an advertisement of Jesus? And why did I just lose my microphone? <laughs> One, two, three. Oh, this has to crank up the juice. A second thing is this. A second thing is this, and I'm just going to say this in a preliminary way. See? See, there is a God. The second thing is this. We need to spend time. This is just a commitment that we need to make. Time with the truth. Lord knows we've got enough time with the lies. We would be outdone completely. We could never counterbalance truth and lies and we never have the power to fight against the lies if it were not for the power of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit taking the word of truth is the only thing that can revolutionize our lives were it not for that we'd be goners but even with the power of the Holy Spirit we need to have time where we allow the Holy Spirit to do the cleansing sanctifying work in our life the only word I want to leave you with is this we need time to spend with the one who is the way the truth and the life I think the most important form of prayer we can have begin to bring about change in our life is to spend time letting Jesus just be the true God He is to us and letting Him tell us who we truly are. To spend time seeing the Lord and seeing the Lord not just in an abstract way but vividly and concretely. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it real to you. To hear Jesus say, Greg, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I care about you? You're the apple of my eye. You're my treasured possession that you sing about this morning. You are that to me to make it concrete, to begin to counteract all the lies that I have there filling my brain which bring about all the ungodly behavior, He begins to plant truth which begins to bring about the fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your willpower. It's not the fruit of your mind power. It's not the fruit of your own effort. It's the fruit of the Spirit because as the Spirit points you to Jesus, He shows you how He loves you. The change comes about as a byproduct. You can only love 
when you yourself are getting loved and experiencing love, the best thing you can do to become a more loving spouse, best thing you can do is to spend time letting Jesus love you as a spouse. The best way you can become a, a more loving person, a, a parent, is to let Jesus experience Jesus, see Jesus, and hear Jesus love you as a parent. The way we become more loving is by being filled in our lives with the truth of who Jesus is and having Him tell us the truth of who we are in Him. The change occurs as a byproduct. So it is, we'll see, with all the other areas that are in our life. The verse that sums it up is 2 Corinthians 3.17. And Paul says, And we all with unveiled faces, as we behold the glory of the Lord, were transformed from one glory to another. How are we transformed? By do's and don'ts and mandates and commands and feeling lousy about ourselves? No. By looking to Jesus. Seeing His glory, we are transformed into that glory. This morning, I don't know where you're at. I don't know where this is landing with you. But I want you to know that the altars are open as, we, as, as we're dismissed. Feel free to come forward. There'll be people here that would, would love to pray with you. Maybe you have a particular need in your life that you need to experience the truth of who God is and the truth of who you are in relationship to that. Feel free to come forward as we close. Let's stand. we close with this song, Oh How He Loves You and Me. If you know it, as we've done all morning long, uh, sing, sing, sing it. If you don't, just let the, the presence of the Lord communicate it to you. Oh how He loves you and me. Oh how He loves you and me. He gave His life. What more could He Oh, how He loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. Oh, how He loves you and me. Think about it. Oh, how He loves you and me. He gave His life. What more could He give? Oh, how He loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Lord, we sing that, we say it, we believe it. By the power of Your Spirit, help us to experience it. Sanctify us with the truth, Lord. Your Word is truth. In Your name we pray. Amen. The altars are open if you, if you need it.